Well, good morning. Great to have you here, as our team have already indicated. Uh, those of you here for the first time, you're very, very welcome. We've been expecting you, and uh, we're glad you're here. For whatever reason you're here, some of you are here of your own volition. Some of you lost a bet. Uh, some of you, well, you've all got a story, but here we are. And we've themed this morning, All or Nothing. And this expression, it's not a new expression. It's certainly not a church expression exclusively. But it is an expression that you might not even realize that you bump into uh, in areas of your life. I'm certainly bumping into it in a way in my life right now that is driving me crazy. I take my TV remote control right now, point it at the TV, and whatever I click, click change channels, click Netflix uh, scrolling, whatever it is, I get a little pop-up in the top right-hand corner of my screen that says, remote control, battery, running low, please swap batteries. That should be a reasonably straightforward fix, but here's the thing. My current battery in that remote control has lasted two years, and by the way, as is evidenced by the fact that I punch it and something happens on the screen, it's still got a little bit of juice left in it. So a two-year-old battery with a little bit of juice, my TV's telling me to swap it out. I'm like, I don't know. I don't really like the vibe that my TV's putting down right now. However, I thought maybe it would be good to have a spare that when the very last bit of juice finally exhausts itself, I'll be able to just, you know, cleverly and smugly walk into my junk drawer and pull out a fresh battery. But here's the problem. I only need one battery and I go to the grocery store, and I went to the battery section, and the best deal I could find was a four-pack, a four-pack of batteries. And on that four-pack, some, I don't know, profiteer wrote on that, not sold separately. So in that moment, I'm standing in the supermarket aisle. I have two choices. I could either pop open the blister pack and steal one battery, or I would have to be forced to buy an eight years supply of remote control batteries. So I just left. <laughs> but then we have all or nothing people. How many of you identify or are willing to identify as an all or nothing person? We got any all or nothing people here? I'm an all or nothing people now. I get it. Most all or nothing people are going, mate, my hand's either going to fight straight up or I'm giving you nothing, pal. I get it. So let me ask a different question. How many of you are married to an all or nothing person? See, there's a lot more hands up. My wife's hand goes up. You put both hands up. That's just offensive. Uh, you know you're an all or nothing person if you're either 5.30 a.m. crossfitting or you're sneaking cake into the bathroom after dinner. You're like, your spouse walks in and you go, uh, just multitasking here, babe. You know you're an all or nothing person if you've either just finished Marie condoing your house or your lounge chairs have empty pizza boxes where the throw cushions should be. You know that you're an all or nothing person if that is kind of your vibe. We've called this morning All or Nothing because of something that a guy named Paul wrote. Now, Paul was like one of the heavyweights of the early church. Paul would go around to uh, large kind of port cities in the known world, in the Mediterranean in particular, and launch new churches. And after he'd launched them, he'd kind of raise up some leaders and hand it over. But he'd keep in contact with them. And uh, what I want to do is I want to airdrop us. Uh, the reason he would keep in contact with them by writing letters. I want to airdrop us into a slice of one of the letters he wrote to a church in a place in Greece called Corinth, a port city in Greece 
And uh, those of you, uh, regulars, you might have our app. You can uh, open that up. You can tap the Bible tile, bottom left corner, and uh, it'll take you to this slice of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. If not, that's cool. You can either download the app or we're going to put it up in the biggest uh, version in the room up on the screens. But this letter or this slice of the letter that Paul wrote, uh, and now it's a bit tricky to play favorites with the Bible or with sections of the Bible. But what I want to actually drop us into this morning, some big brain Bible people have actually said that this is one of the most important things written in the entire Bible, if not the most important thing, which is a pretty good call, a pretty big call. So this is a slice of what Paul wrote to that church in Corinth because they'd actually been... uh, They actually had people passing through there telling them that Jesus had not actually risen from the grave. And some of them, that was sowing doubt in their minds. And that message got back to Paul that they were being exposed to this idea that Jesus hadn't really risen from the grave. And the thing that we're saying is if that's true, then Easter is a lie. Uh, And so Paul wrote to them to, to reassure them. And this is what he wrote. Team, the first thing I did was place before you what was placed So emphatically before me that the Messiah, which is Jesus, died for our sins, exactly as Scripture tells it, that he was buried and that he was raised from death on the third day, exactly as Scripture says. Now, I'm aware that me standing up here and and, and sitting, even some of those of you around, some of your friends think that you're a lunatic. Because Jesus has been kind of bundled into the same category as Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and Luke Skywalker. That they're just fictitious characters that someone's written about. And sorry to be telling you that, Star Wars aficionados. (laughs) That it's fiction. And here's the thing. You can read historical records, not just those contained in the Bible, historical records, Roman historians, they will tell you that there was such a person named Jesus of Nazareth, that he was a real guy. You can read the same types of historical texts and they will tell you that that same guy did actually die on a cross, was crucified by the Roman authorities at the time. So I'm not going to get into that. Did Jesus exist it's pretty well established he did. Was he crucified? It's pretty well established that he was. The question we're asking is, did he rise from the dead? Because there's a whole lot of people that were born. During that era, there was, there was a whole lot of people crucified. In fact, at one point in the Roman Empire, they ran out of suitable trees to put people up on a cross. They were crucifying so many people. So for someone to have been crucified wasn't that remarkable. But for someone to come back from the dead after being crucified... That's a pretty neat party trick. And that's the party trick that the followers of Jesus that then exploded around the known world are actually saying is just as true as Jesus existing and having been crucified in the first place. And a lot of people have looked into this, and I want to kind of take a dive into some of the arguments and some of the cases for and against whether this question, did Jesus really rise from the grave? Is, is it true or not? And one of the guys is a guy named Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell uh, was an atheist and a skeptic. And he spent over 700 hours of his life just looking at the resurrection, asking the question, was the resurrection truth or fake news? And this is what he wrote as a part of his research. I've come to the conclusion 
that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is either one of the most heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of people or it's the most fantastic fact of history. So I just want to take a flyover of some of the arguments kind of like against this being a true story. And I'm aware that it's not going to give us, we don't have time to take a deep dive. I'm also aware that I probably won't be able to convince all of the doubters and skeptics, the people that started out like Josh McDowell started out. But just let me put out a few of uh, the ideas against whether Jesus rose from the dead and, and maybe just get the cogs in your mind ticking. Maybe some of that will seep down into your heart as well. Because this is either one of the greatest hoaxes or it's one of the greatest pieces of news, if not the greatest piece of news. Now, before I get into the arguments against and kind of do a bit of myth busting, let me give you a 60-second flyover of what the resurrection is. Uh, Good Friday, we just uh, kind of had that in, in our kind of Christian calendar. Uh, what that signified is on that day, on a Friday, Jesus Christ, the man, was nailed to a cross pronounced dead on that cross. That happened on a Friday. We call it Good Friday. Uh, Jesus' followers would not have called it Good Friday. In fact, the only people that would have called it Good Friday back then were the Roman authorities that were actually thought that they'd gotten rid of this nuisance called Jesus that was threatening their power. Well, that body, when that body was dead, was placed in a tomb, which was customary. Uh, Three days later, some of Jesus' followers went to visit that tomb. In fact, it was a a bunch of women, a handful of of women that first went to the tomb and they went there to to recover the body and and put some embalming and and spices and give him a more of a a ceremonial burial. The women got to the tomb and they discovered that the the stone was a two-ton stone that was covering the tomb, that had actually been rolled away and the tomb was empty. Jesus wasn't in the tomb. That certainly changed their morning. Uh, And... They went and told some of Jesus' other followers who were actually huddled up in a room for fear of their lives. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, they thought they'd be next. So the women ran back and said, guess what? You're not going to believe this. And so, so then these, some of the men then went to the tomb and they discovered, just like the women had, that the tomb was empty, that stone had been rolled away, and Jesus wasn't there. Okay. But here's, so we have eyewitnesses. And these eyewitness accounts, and the reason I'm telling you that about the women and the stone and the tomb and the cross is because it's been written down by four guys named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They just wrote them down, eyewitness accounts. Those accounts are now in what we call the Bible. They didn't write them to be in the Bible. They wrote them just to make sure that they were recorded, eyewitness accounts. Since then, 2,000 years have gone by, and uh, people have tried to poke holes and disprove the truth of the eyewitness accounts. So let me walk through some of this. It's going to be like skipping stones. As I said, we can't take a deep dive. But let me start, and I kind of do it in chronological order. The first one, the first argument is the fact, is, is people contend that Jesus wasn't dead. That on that cross, Jesus wasn't dead. This, whilst it would have been in chronological order of Jesus' death and resurrection, the first thing that we'd have to disprove, um, it's actually the most recent argument. Uh, It it only came out about 200 years ago. Kind of like all of the other arguments (laughs) weren't holding up, so someone threw a new one in, lobbed, lobbed 200 years ago, lobbed in, and they called it the swoon theory, that Jesus kind of just went, oh, this cross business, it's far too much, (sighs) and just passed out on the cross. He didn't die, he just fell into a coma. Well, 
If that's true, then the comatose Jesus convinced professional soldiers for whom it was their job, like I said, they were crucifying so many people that they ran out of trees. He convinced them that he was dead. They, if they hadn't done their job right, they would have been next. So you don't just sign off on the con. Yeah, yeah, he was, he looked dead. Pontius Pilate, who was the authority that sent him to be crucified, he's actually on record as having signed off on the fact that Jesus Christ was dead. There's no actual historians that have ever contended until 200 years ago of whether or not Jesus really died. So you can look into that a bit more for yourself, but I'm going to move on. The next argument is this one. Jesus escaped. Now remember, these Romans, they were very good at their job. Very good at their job. And in this case, not only did they have the incentive for threat of their own death, the soldiers, to make sure that something like this didn't happen for anybody that had been crucified. But they had added incentive because the reason Jesus was crucified is he was gaining so much popularity and influence that the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders, they actually saw him as a threat. People are starting to listen to him more than us, so let's kill him. So it's in their best interest to make sure they did this job right. In fact, This is what Matthew records about this moment. After sundown, so Jesus had been put on the cross. Now he's put in the tomb. After sundown, the high priests and the Pharisees, that's the Jewish leaders, arranged a meeting with Pilate. And they said, so we we just remembered that that liar, Jesus, announced while he was still alive, after three days, I will be raised. We've got to get to that tomb We've got to get that tomb sealed until the third day because there's a good chance his disciples will come and steal the corpse and then go around saying, he's risen from the dead. And then we'll be worse off than before, the final deceit surpassing the first. So Pilate told them, you will have a guard. So go ahead and secure it as best you can. And so they went out and secured the tomb, sealing the stone and posting guards. The Romans and the Jewish people understood that we can't let this guy escape. Either he es- get, get him escape or, or let the, the disciples steal the body. So they put a Roman guard. Now, guard is plural. Six to 24 of the hand-picked, best-quality Roman soldiers to stand outside, put a two-ton stone in front, and make sure Jesus stays on the inside and his followers stay on the outside. If Jesus wasn't dead and escaped, then here's how this plays out. That a guy that was in such poor condition that he was able to convince professionals that he was dead even though he actually wasn't, was then put in a tomb with no food, no water, and no medical attention. And during that three days, he'd got his pep back. So much so that he was able to, from the inside, roll away single-handedly a two-ton stone, get out his little and overpower between six to 24 highly trained, highly armed Roman soldiers and then escape. I'm not going to tell you where I stand on that side of that theory, but I think it takes more faith to believe the latter than the former. Well, then there's this one, this theory, 
that they went to the wrong tomb. Now, this one I think is plausible. Because as I said, the first people that went to the tomb were women, and you know how women are with directions. Oh, sorry. Plus, you know how women, they can get emotional. I think this has been poisoned. (laughs) It was the first day of the week, and you know how you are on Monday mornings. Maybe they hadn't had their coffee. But here's the thing. That tomb wasn't just an ordinary tomb. In fact, it had been loaned to Jesus by one of the most wealthy people in the region. And so this tomb was not like, a li- this, was a, this was a big deal. This was it's like a monument. Joseph of Arimathea, he would have had this tomb built while he was still alive so that when he died, people would still remember him because the tomb was so highly visible. That was the tomb that the, that the women went to to find the stone rolled away and the tomb was empty. Then they ran back and told the guys, and the guys came running. So even if the women had gone to the wrong tomb, this theory then says that the men also went to the wrong tomb. But here's the other thing it, 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 it overlooks. After Jesus had allegedly escaped or, or, or not in the, in the wrong tomb, what had happened is these eyewitnesses started telling people, Jesus, we thought he was dead, and he's alive. The tomb is empty. And on the basis of that eyewitness account, this, this thing called Christianity started to spread. The Romans, they tried to put a lid on this thing by crucifying Jesus. It actually had the opposite effect. It was like a brush fire. Do you not think that if the Roman authorities knew that the body was still in the correct tomb, that at some point early, that they would have given the game away. It said, what? These jokers are running around telling people that the tomb is empty and Jesus isn't there. Look next door. They went to 46. He's actually in 48. And all they do then is say, guys, roll the stone back, roll the stone back, gather Jesus' body and parade it around and go, this is the one you're talking about? Or the body was stolen. Well, we've kind of riffed on that a little bit. Stolen by the disciples, which was the very thing that the Romans and the Jewish leaders feared. And so they put this stone in front of it, and they put these six to 24 highly trained Roman soldiers in front of it. And and this theory says the disciples stole the body. Here's what happened. When Jesus was, was on the cross, very few of his followers were there. They were in hiding because they thought they were going to be next. They were hiding in a room. So, so, so this theory suggests that a bunch of cowards had somehow plucked up the courage to go and, and overpower six to 24 Roman guards, roll the stone back, and steal Jesus' body. The problem is that most of Jesus' followers actually died because they believed the resurrection. And if you were then 
threatened with death and you knew it wasn't true? Well, here's one. The eyewitnesses lied. In that society, in that culture, women had almost zero credibility. That was a cultural thing. And yet the eyewitness accounts are on record as saying that the first people to have discovered Jesus' empty tomb were women. If they wanted to actually put that story forward as being credible, there is absolutely culturally no way they would have made women the heroes of that story. They wouldn't have even been written into the script. They would, <laughs> the men would have said, we went first, we got there first, the women were in the kitchen making breakfast. Well, then there's this one. The eyewitnesses were hallucinating long before the two-pack hologram became a technological reality. People just thought they saw Jesus alive. And this is what Paul wrote in the letter, the next thing he wrote. He was buried in a tomb, and he was raised from the dead after three days, as foretold in the Scriptures. In fact, he appeared to Peter, the rock, not Dwayne the rock, Peter the rock, this is the original, the OG rock, not the, anyway. And then to the 12 apostles, this was Jesus' kind of closest, closest followers. He also appeared to more than 500 of his followers at the same time. This is like Jesus meets Coachella before Coachella was a thing. Most of whom, by the way, are still alive as I write this. Though a few have passed away. Paul wrote this letter about 20 to 30 years after the eyewitnesses claimed to have seen Jesus alive. And Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, go and ask them. Then he appeared to James, which is Jesus' brother, and to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared in front of me. If you've ever had a dream, have you needed to tell somebody for them to understand you had that dream, whether it's your spouse or a family member or a friend? Have you had, hey, I had this dream, and they say, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, but, yeah, but let me tell you what it was in. What, what was in the dream? No, 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 I know. I had the exact same dream at the exact same moment, and so did 498 of our friends. <laughs> this is not how hallucinations work, people. And then this one, eyewitnesses died for a lie. Some of them were crucified like Jesus. Some were set on fire. Some were fed to lions. Some were covered in tar. And one was left to die alone on an island, the only one who died of natural causes. And here's the thing. If they knew it was a lie, then when they were being prosecuted, they could have just said, yeah, yeah, you got me. I lied. And maybe get put in jail, but nothing quite as brutal as what happened. But here's what an April 1988 New York Times article writes. Shortly after Jesus was executed, his followers were suddenly galvanized from a baffled and cowering group into people whose message about a living Jesus and a coming kingdom, preached at the risk of their lives, eventually changed an empire. Something happened... But exactly what? You know, Paul wrote that one of the people that Jesus appeared to was his brother James. Before Jesus' crucifixion, 
Even though Jesus was telling people he was the son of God, James, his brother, didn't buy it. Didn't believe him. Which is fair enough. Think about it. What's it going to take for one of your siblings to convince you that they're the son of God or the daughter of God? It's gonna, you know what it's going to take? It's going to take them dying and rising from the grave and appearing to you. And you think, not bad. Okay, now I'm impressed. Yeah, the miracles were cool. I saw you healing the blind person. I thought, that's a good one. I saw you feeding 15,000 people from a little kid's lunchbox. Yeah, okay, started to think, eh, but nah. But this, this, you here now after that? All right, I'm in. And James' brother became a follower of Jesus, the risen Jesus, to the extent that James was then prosecuted and persecuted. He was taken to the top of the temple and thrown off for being a follower of Jesus. Once again, could have just said, ah, just kidding, no. Take, and thrown off the top of the temple and the impact didn't kill him to the point where he got on his knees and started praying for the people that were trying to kill him and they picked up stones and stoned him to death. That's the brother of Jesus who wasn't convinced that Jesus was the son of God and then became convinced. Something happened, but exactly what? Well, here's another theory. This is my favorite theory, actually. It really happened that over 500 eyewitnesses were actually telling the truth. And what was written about what they saw is actually true, that the Bible isn't a J.R.R. Tolkien novel. It's actually an historical recording of eyewitness accounts who have seen Jesus, the Son of God, do what no one had ever done before, defeated death. And it's all or nothing, people. This is what Paul continued to write to that church in Corinth. If there's no resurrection, then there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, then everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. <laughs> Not only that, but we'd be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits were passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ. Sheer fabrication. If there's no resurrection. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't. Because he was indeed dead. If Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark, as lost as ever. It's even worse for those died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration. I mean, Jesus was a good teacher, you know. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. There is a promise that is offered to every single one of us that Jesus didn't just leave the grave to prove something for himself. He left the grave to offer something from himself. 
He left the grave to say that, you know what? Death has no power over me. And if you choose to put your faith in me, if you choose to put your trust in me, you know what? He actually promises to give you that same power, that same life, that same future, that same hope, that same promise, that, that failure has no power over you, that your past has no power over you, that those negative words spoken in your growing up have no power over you, those addictions have no power over you, those busted relationships have no power over you. Jesus gives you and me, if we choose to follow him, access to the same power that God used to raise him from the dead. There's a line, there's a line that Johnny Cash wrote in his song, Ain't No Grave. And it's a country western song. So I could sing it, because as I've said here before, I can't sing, but country western songs come pre-butchered. So what's the worst thing that I could do? But he says in that song, Jesus, if you're walking out of that grave, I'm walking too. Jesus invites us to come Follow him. And this is something that C.S. Lewis discovered for himself. Now, C.S. Lewis was a British author, probably best known in our day and age as the, as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He started out his, his, his journey as, a, as an author, as, a, as an atheist, and as a skeptic. And he's actually since produced a book called God in the Dock, where he actually tested this stuff about Jesus and the resurrection, tested it for himself. And this is what he wrote when he accepted and decided and understood that the resurrection isn't a lie. Something perfectly new in the history of the universe had happened. Christ had defeated death. The door which had always been locked had for the very first time been forced open. I want to share with you a little slice of a story of one of our friends who discovered this very same truth for herself. Her name's Sarah May, and how about you check this out? I've known God since I was a little girl. I was introduced to God by my grandmother. I did attend a Sunday school, and I was introduced around about the age of four or five and I think I've always been open to faith. However, there have been certain situations in my life that I had felt that I needed to listen. I needed to be open, I needed to be aware, I needed to stop. I feel as though I needed to find my family and I feel as though I have found my family at this church. For me, going to church, it's like a jazz band and you can hear that jazz band in the background and you know, you can hear the music, you can hear the laughter, you can hear the song and the closer that I started to get towards God, that band started to become louder and I started to really understand joy in my heart. I feel as though that there is an immense joy at the church. I've never been welcomed into a church with such open arms. It just feels right. 
I've come home. I'm being baptised because I've chosen to be open with my faith. It's basically me surrendering to God to say, this is my chosen way. It just feels so seamless, so effortless that I take this journey. It's a celebration of joy for me to be able to surrender my heart and my, my mind and my soul and my body to God to say, I trust you. I believe in you. You've shown me the way and I'm here. It's a transformation with being at peace, being at peace with yourself and your heart, knowing that you are being guided and to be open to understanding that I'm being guided in the right direction for the right reason and I'm not alone. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, and do you confess him as your Lord and Saviour? Yes. I now baptise you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So cool. <laughs> so good. It's quite emotional. <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> See, the thing is, we take moments like this and they can mean so much. They can propel us on a journey that, that God has marked on our lives no matter what. And this morning we've heard stuff about Jesus and we've heard, is he real, is he not? But I'm just here as another person who made this decision years ago, who got baptised years ago and exactly Sarah May's journey, we, some of us have all really similar journeys and some of us don't have that in our journey yet. Well, this morning, I would feel completely remiss if I didn't offer you the opportunity today. If there's anything in your heart that you're thinking, man, this Jesus character is becoming more than just a character to me. He's becoming something that I want to hang on to, that I want to grip on to, that I want to get my fingers in and understand what this man has done and what this man can become in my life. See, Jesus ultimately is a saviour. He has come and the Bible talks about he's written eternity on our hearts. And this morning, I would love to invite you, if you have never responded to Jesus walking into your heart and starting a journey exactly like Sarah May, then that is what I'd love to do this morning. And all you have to do is slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. So just to be clear, what I'm asking you is, do you want to say yes to following Jesus all the days of your life from this day forward? And there's two categories today, or three or four, who cares however many there are. There's some of us who really know Jesus intimately, but have decided that we haven't really wanted to be in relationship with him, so we haven't really done much about it. I'm inviting you to put up your hand and let me pray for you. 
There's some of us who have walked so far away from him that we're not even interested in anything he has to say. Yet today, there's something that sparked in our hearts and we want to turn around and look him in the face and say, yep, do you know what? I want to do that. And then there's a third group that have never, ever, ever said yes to following Jesus. And this would be the first time that you ever do that. If you are any in any of those categories, I would love to pray for you because I'm going to pray anyway. So you may as well throw one up and get amongst it. And I can actually, I can almost guarantee you, or I'd love to, no, I will guarantee you that this journey of following Jesus is the most wild ride that you can ever go on because he absolutely will never leave or forsake you no matter what. He will be with you in good and bad. He will lead you. He will guide you. And more than anything, he will love you like nobody has ever loved you before with unconditional love. So as I sweep my eyes across the room, this auditorium, if that's you, slip up your hand and I'm going to pray for you. If you want to say yes to following Jesus... Let's do that together today.